Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard the views of two tech investors, Joey Ito and Kai-Fu Lee, on the future of work. This week, we talked to a French entrepreneur about his successful ride-sharing venture. You have to concentrate your efforts kind of locally, and then little by little, you begin to have matches on the axis that you've started, and then word of mouth kicks in, and people learn that it works, and so they say, oh, it works uh, there, why wouldn't it work on this other destination? And then you begin to kick in the virtual cycle. That was the voice of Frédéric Mazella, founder of BlaBlaCar, which now operates in more than 20 countries. I spoke to him recently in Paris about his company's rapid growth and about the rise of tech entrepreneurship in France. So, Frédéric, can you tell us how and when did BlaBlaCar start? BlaBlaCar started a bit more than 10 years ago. We started from France with a different name. What was the original name? It was Covoiturage. Covoiturage in French means carpooling. And then when we expanded internationally, we changed the name, obviously, because we needed something which everyone can pronounce. And um, so it started by uh, offering the possibility to drivers to share their cars on their way with passengers going the same way, with a very simple way of people calling each other and see if they could arrange a ride together, mainly on long distances. So it's still, of course, our activity today. So drivers offer their seats. Passengers contact the drivers and then they pay their seat online and then they travel together on distances of about 100 to 600 kilometers and uh, then the team grew uh, little by little at the beginning so I was uh, lucky enough to uh, meet my co-founders along the way and then we coded the service together, we expanded it. Initially we sold platforms of uh, carpooling to companies as B2B services on a SaaS platform. And there was also the public service on the website and soon after the mobile app. That was for normal people like you and me who want to travel on long distances. You really are in the kind of sharing economy, aren't you? This is a public good in a way that uh, you're enabling people to cover the cost of their travel, but they're not really making a lot of profit out of it or money out of it. Oh yeah, that's a very important point. Is that something that's baked into your business or would you ever consider changing the model in order to enable drivers and you to earn more money out of the system? Well, today, really, we are a cost-sharing solution which means drivers don't make any profit, which is the main difference actually compared to other companies which are taxis or the on-demand services, you can order a car and everything. Here in our situation, it's people like you and me who will share the cost on a ride. There is no professional driver and there is no benefit. And the best proof of that is that if you look at the price people pay when they share the cost per kilometer, you will be at six or seven cents a kilometer. Well, it depends on the countries, but it's roughly the scale. And if you look at taxis, they will be in between 1 and 3 euros per kilometer. So sharing a ride is 20 to 50 times cheaper per kilometer than having a professional driver helping you getting around. So it's a big difference because we are really in the cost-sharing zone. We are not at all in a zone where people or drivers could make any profit. It changes a lot the behavior, of course. Of the drivers. Our so. drivers won't bring you wherever you want. They are going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go with them, you're welcome. If you want to go somewhere else, you're welcome to see with someone else. So it's a very big difference. It doesn't mean we would not adapt maybe in the future for another model, but it's clearly something else and it's not something we do today. 
And how did you market it? Because it's obviously a huge difficulty trying to build two-sided markets if you have too many drivers, not enough passengers is not going to work and vice versa. So how did you build both sides of that market in tandem? You're right. It's a marketplace. So it's very tricky in the beginning. It's just like, um, you know, this memory game that we have when we are children where you flip a card and it's a duck and then it's a house and then it's a scale and then ah, it's a duck again and then you get a match. So a marketplace is just like this, but for us it's matching people who are doing the same rides at the same time and the odds that you find people who do that and who tell you in advance that they will do that are super low. At the beginning you're just crying because you've got offers you've got someone going from Paris to Lyon tomorrow at 2 p.m. and someone who's looking for a ride from Montpellier to Bordeaux in two days from now at 6 p.m. You have no way to match them. And so you have to concentrate your efforts on trying to build some axis which will work and not spread your energy and your money to all the directions because otherwise your marketplace never starts. So you have to concentrate your efforts kind of locally. And then little by little, you begin to have matches on the axis that you've started. And then word of mouth kicks in and people learn that it works. And so they say, oh, it works uh, there. Why wouldn't it work on this other destination? And then you begin to kick in the virtual circle. And how many rides do you do a day now? It's several uh, dozens of thousands. And how many countries? Per day. And we are in a bit more than 20 countries. Now, something like this was tried in America, wasn't it, before Blah Blah Car started, and it never really worked. So what's the difference between the US and France? Is it a matter of market or culture or attitude or what? Yeah, uh, well, it's, you know, it's, uh, all those things, it, it's always tough to analyze why it works and tough to understand why it doesn't work. So I'll be very humble about why it doesn't work in the US. It's been tried indeed by very talented people who were actually funded. You know, uh, John Zimmer and uh, Logan Green from Lyft, they had tried their company under the name Zimride initially, and they were doing exactly what we're doing today. It didn't work, even though they tried to launch specifically an axis from San Francisco to Los Angeles on the West Coast. It didn't work, and we think the reason may be that, first of all, gas is very cheap in the U.S., which makes it so that the incentive for people to share a ride as drivers and share the cost is very low. So that may explain it. And then you take also the GDP per inhabitant in the US, which is higher than anywhere else on Earth. And you combine all this, and driving a mile with your car in the US is about three times cheaper than driving the same mile with your car in Europe. So the incentive for sharing, cost-wise, is not very high. Then the second thing is that the distances are a lot longer. So people tend to fly from city to city. And the cities are more spread out. So usually the public transit is not as dense as what it is in Europe or in other countries sometimes, other cities, which means that uh, drivers can't really give an appointment anywhere in the city or drop their passengers anywhere in the city and just tell them, now you'll finish by foot or by public transit, because if you're dropped in the middle of Los Angeles and then your driver tells you, okay, now you finish by foot, it's a bit complicated. That's a problem. So it means uh, drivers have to go around the city to pick up their passengers and go around the city to drop them off. And this is a bit of an issue because you may lose 45 minutes or an hour at the beginning of your ride and same time at the end of your ride. So it's even less of an incentive. So we believe that those two reasons may explain why long-distance ride-sharing has not picked up in the US. Have guns got anything to do with it? I don't know because we could say so for so many other activities. So I'm not sure. This is less quantifiable. 
And also, you know, companies like Airbnb have been able to develop in the same kind of sharing economy as BlaBlaCar. And um, guns haven't been an issue, so I'm not sure. Right. But it does raise an issue of security, doesn't it? I'm sure a lot of people would be worried about getting into a car with a stranger. So what do you do on both sides to ensure that the drivers, the passengers are reasonable people and vice versa? So what we do is, since we're a digital company, we have the possibility for people to build up their profiles and build up a trust profile. So there are lots of tools online today for you to connect either to your other social profiles or we check the phone numbers, we check identity, we check bank accounts and uh, also there are ratings, you know, people rate each other. So it's a community where we know with whom you will be uh, ride sharing before because you have a full profile of the person you're going with and you have the ratings from the people who have taken a ride with this person before. And so what we have witnessed is that we've made a, a survey recently on the level of trust we're able to create between two people in the BlaBlaCar community. It's actually stunning because we asked people to rank their level of trust from zero to five in several types of uh, personas. So for example, how much you trust your neighbors, how much you trust your colleagues, how much you trust your friends, your family members, uh, your social network contacts. And then the result is very stunning because for social media contacts, 16% of the people will say they have a high level of trust in those, so four or five out of five. For neighbors, it's 42%. Uh, For colleagues, it's 58%. For friends, it's 92%, and for family members, it's 94%. And then the question was, how much you trust on the same scale people who have a full profile on blah, blah, car? And the answer is 88%, which wow. means that the trust you generate between in a community like this, thanks to the digital tools and the digital profiles that people have, is almost equivalent to the trust you can create between friends and family members, and a lot higher than the trust you have for your neighbours or your colleagues. So in a way you are creating a kind of community. Are you doing anything to enhance that community other than via the kind of Yeah, we do communicate a lot with the community. We ourselves, as employees of the company, we do write share a lot. You know, there are several levels of implications in the community. So you begin as a beginner, of course, and then you become an expert and then you become an ambassador. And um, a lot of us at BlaBlaCar, working for BlaBlaCar, are ambassadors in the community. So we do write share a lot uh, with our product. We have a value internally which says, think it, build it, use it, which we use extensively. So we think about features on the product, we build them, and then we use the product and we see if it works. And if it doesn't, then we get rid of it. And if it does, then we emphasize this feature. So we do communicate that way with the community. We do organize lots of meetups. We have what we call the BlaBla Times, where we go and meet the members wherever they are. Last year alone, we did 120 meetups all over the world, like from India to Brazil and then mostly Europe as well. And we also go to festivals and we meet the members when they are arriving and departing from the music festival. So we do meet the community a lot and organize events for them. So in a way, it's like a mobile dating agency, is it? Well, I wouldn't say it's dating. I would well. It depends in what sense. It's meeting people, and it's a lot less boring to travel with people than to travel alone. Also, so that's what we make possible. Now, a lot of business people, entrepreneurs in France, say it's an extraordinarily difficult country to work in. Lots of regulation, red tape, high taxes, employee restrictions. How have you found it? Is it really restrictive to be an entrepreneur in France? No, I wouldn't say so. Well, to me, I'm French, so I know the system well, and I think it's good to know the system you're in in order to grow your company. 
then in order to be able to answer the question whether or not it's easier to start a business in France compared to other countries, I would say I cannot really answer this question because I haven't started businesses in other countries, except that we've expanded, but it's a bit different. So I think also that us as French, and we like to complain. That's our way of changing things often. And since we like to complain, we say it. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. We say, oh, it's hard to create a business. Yeah, yeah, sure, it's hard to create a business, but it's hard everywhere. It's not just hard in France, it's hard anywhere on earth. And we tend to always think that the grass is greener on the other side. But I think that it's clearly about the difficulty of creating a business and, and that's it. And I don't think it's harder in France than in anywhere else in the world. And I was talking to some French entrepreneurs the other day who were saying that 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, it was really the done thing if you had global ambitions that you would go to Silicon Valley if you were from France. And now they thought that the balance had changed, that if you were an ambitious French entrepreneur, you really would stay in France. Is that right, do you think? And if so, what has changed to kind of raise the level of opportunity in Europe? What has really changed is the ecosystem itself. What I can witness over the past 10 and mainly five years is that we've always had very good schools for bringing out very clever people in the workforce, and it's always been a very great asset. But uh, we also have now an ecosystem of not only the possibility of finding financing, being able to raise funds from France and from Europe, and also outside, but the possibility to have all the stages of finance from business angels to seed and uh, series A, B, C, which are so important for a startup to grow according to its traction. So we now have this structure of financing startups. We also have a very positive mindset around creating new companies with lots of incubators, accelerators, or these kind of entities which help entrepreneurs in the first days and years of their company. And also the mindset itself, you can feel that the young generation is really into creating companies now. But a lot of the money that you have raised has come from America, is that right? How much have you raised? Yes, well, in total, we've raised a bit more than $300 million, and um, more than two-thirds, I'd say, would come from uh, U.S. fans. But the reason is mainly because what we do, so we're a platform, we're a marketplace, we're a platform, it is something that in America has been around for more than a decade, and so the investors are used to this kind of marketplaces, Whereas the funds in Europe sometimes are not as big as the U.S. funds yet and sometimes haven't seen so many examples of these kind of platforms. So it's more a question of, I would say, resonance of our activity with U.S. investors than something else. So the good news is that you can bring capital from anywhere. We have a very good workforce now which is able to create these kind of platforms because capital is more mobile than people. And so we have great people in Europe. They are, in general, the price you would pay for building a platform like ours is actually cheaper from Europe than it is from the US because all the engineers and all the people who know how to build platforms 
have super high salaries in the US because we know the values that it brings. In Europe, it's more reasonable, I would say. So you are able to build the same kind of worldwide platform, worldwide marketplaces, but for cheaper. I used to live in France in the 2000s and most of the people from the kind of top universities would want very often to become a civil servant, a fonctionnaire. Mm. Uh, it has radically changed. I, I know that. I was seeing see. a poll yeah. the other yeah. day showing that a huge number of French people, 18 to 24, now want to be an entrepreneur. Exactly. They want to start a business. Yeah. What has changed? Is it the example of people like you who has inspired a new generation of French entrepreneurs? Well, we should ask them the reason. But I think that we've seen that relying on the state and all the organizations, centralized organizations that we have may not be the solution for the next world we have to live in with globalization, with innovation, all these pushes people to their next limit. And so that's why I was talking about the mindset right before, because the mindset itself is possibly the most important thing for a country to be innovative. And then when people switch from willing to be a civil servant to willing to be an entrepreneur, then the country is on the right path. We're talking a few months before the French elections, and Emmanuel Macron, one of the candidates, has very much associated himself with the kind of tech community. When he was in the government, he did a lot to help support this industry. Is he the overwhelming favourite of entrepreneurs in France? I don't have the polls. I would say people in the tech community, yes, think that he's done great things. Then we'll see what happens next. But he's also a younger generation, so he understands the technologies that we're in very well because he lives in it. So that's also good news. Do you think he has a good chance to win? Yeah, I think so. Well, there are several good candidates, but then, you know, we are three or four months before, so anything can happen, you know, and, and we've seen it uh, this week. Now, I'd like to talk a bit more about Blah Blah Car's international expansion. You were saying you're in 22 countries now. Is there a big difference in the culture between some of those markets, and which are your fastest-growing countries? So, yeah, in terms of expansion, so today, Blah Blah Car is a community of more than 40 million members. We're in uh, 22 countries, and we've mainly expanded over the past four years from being mostly a French company to being very, very global. So thanks to the fundings, of course, but also to the methods of expansion, we've used extensively several methods. One of them is like doing M&As with small teams in the countries. So teams of entrepreneurs in the country with whom we partner. And then this team becomes the team of the country and they manage the country and sometimes a region. This is our preferred model. We've done eight M&As like this of small startups who joined forces with us. It's a very successful model. We also have another model, which is what we call a spin-off model, where we have people internally in the company who have the right culture. So often like being from the country and speaking the language of the country, who will go from the headquarters to this country to launch the new activity, which is a very good solution as well to expand fast with the right culture and the right tools and the right methods. And then we have the third solution, which is actually the hardest, which is to recruit locally a team of entrepreneurs who will join the project and then make it work. So we've used all the methods to expand with a way of spending very rationally the money we had raised, because this is a key, actually. Uh, the first steps, of course, in a company like us is to make sure you have a product which finds its market. So you find the product market fit. And then the next phase is funding the expansion, but funding it very rationally. So making sure that you spend the money with a very rational eye, making sure that you don't overspend on things which are not worth it. 
So that's the way we've expanded so far. And then the differences culturally, you may notice some of them because the populations themselves are different or in some countries, mostly men will be driving and women don't and things like that. So we only reflect things which are already known in the country with the reflection of the society we're in. Now, I gather that Russia is one of your biggest markets for yeah, Russia growing very really fast. Growing super fast yeah. Why is that? We believe it's because sharing a car with other people has always been in the DNA of the country. If you're in Moscow, you can stop almost any car. You just wave on the street and then a car will stop to bring you wherever you want. And it's been like this for years. So unlike other countries where we had to explain what we were doing, which is allowing people to share their cars through an app, we didn't have to explain much in Russia. It was very, very obvious. And also we believe it's because for some connections between cities, sometimes the car is the only way because sometimes you have no train, no bus, no nothing. And the only way to go from city A to city B will be by car. And then with a service like ours, you are able, as a passenger, to go from city A to city B with a Blamla car. Right. How ambitious are you for the future? I mean, what are your plans? Are you going to just expand geographically? Do you want to launch new products? I, I can tell you everything. You know, I, I would <laughs> do a classical answer, which is uh, stay tuned. So you'll see what we launched. The thing is, we are realizing more and more, and we, we knew that, but we are really living it now, that we are part of an entire ecosystem, the car ecosystem. The car ecosystem is super large. So it goes from, of course, the gas companies to tolls, to insurance, to car manufacturers, and also to all the transport ecosystem with buses, trains, and airplanes. So we are part of all this, and we, after like having started our activity, allowing people to share the cost of their ride. We now enter in a phase where we are establishing more and more partnerships with the ecosystem. So we have very strong partnerships, mainly in France for now, where we started. We have partnerships with Total, who is the gas company, and Vinci, who are the highways, and also AXA, who are the insurers. So we are entering a phase where we really partner with the entire ecosystem. How are you going to deal with the arrival of driverless cars? Well, actually... BlaBlaCar is quite resilient to driverless cars because our real specificity and the added values that we bring is that we are matching people who are doing the same rides at the same time. Today, we match drivers who have empty seats with passengers going the same way. And so we will match one driver with two or three passengers sometimes. But then tomorrow, if you have driverless cars, we will have to match two or three or four passengers together. It's about the same job, actually. So our specificity, our added value, which is pulling people on the rides which are common, is untouched. And with driverless cars, it works as well. So we're pretty resilient to driverless cars, but I don't know when they will be really massively deployed. Right. Now, Blah Blah Car is a unicorn. Your last public valuation was over a billion dollars. Are you going to head for an IPO soon? Well, that's a, that's a question we get all the time. There is no plan for IPO right now. We're really focusing on expanding our business, making sure that we provide the best service to our members and constantly improving the product based on the feedbacks we get. Because the more democratized you get, the more your product has to be, of course, top class and quality. So that's the main focus of the teams, making the product easier to use, faster, more reliable. And we've been doing that for 10 years and we'll continue to really improve all this. And then someday, you know, when you grow, good things happen. It may be an IPO, it may be, I don't know, an M&A with uh, someone who would be willing to continue the adventure with us. I don't know. At this point, it's really 
it's really not our focus. But there are a lot of companies now, like Uber, who don't see a great rush to go public. Do you think there is a change in the mindset that you can survive very well as a private company as long as you've got access to finance? Well, yeah, the thing is, an IPO is a different kind of access to capital than business angels or seed or professional investors or venture capital funds or equity funds. So IPO is one of the types you can finance a company. And when you have some other ways of financing, like large private investors who are able to actually fund the company at the level of its ambition, then it's another solution, of course. And we see that with Uber, as you said, they're able to raise massive amounts of capital without going public. And so in this context, you don't see the advantage of really going public or not. Maybe one day, but it's one source of financing. All right. Thank you very much, Frederick. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week in conversation with Catherine Parsons, who co-founded a company that seeks to promote digital literacy by teaching anyone to code in a day. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.